understanding how and why people make, in hindsight, stupid decisions, but in real time, locally rational or bounded rationally decisions to go, it made sense. Let's dig into that. Welcome to the Thinking Leader Podcast, sponsored by Red Team Thinking. Bad leaders react, good leaders plan, and great leaders think. Each week, we bring you new ideas and insights from business leaders, military leaders, and thought leaders. Ideas and insights that will help you think more deeply and lead more effectively, so that you can better navigate your complex world. Here again are your hosts, best-selling business author and top-rated leadership speaker, Bryce Hoffman, and former Royal Air Force Wing Commander and Business Agility Coach, Marcus Dimbleby. Hello and welcome to the show. I am Bryce Hoffman, president of Red Team Thinking and author of the book Red Teaming. I am joined as always by... Good day, Marcus Dimbleby, vice president at Red Team Thinking. And today we've got another guest. Who is that guest? Well, we have Gareth Locke, who is the founder of The Human Diver, which focuses on counter-errorism in diving. Counter-errorism, I love that. Gareth, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for the uh, the invite. Really, really pleased, really humbled to be here. So thank you very much. Welcome. What, what is what does that mean? Counter errorism. So my 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 goal really is is to try and bring human factors into the diving industry. My background is military aviation. That that's core to improving performance and safety. And it's all about recognizing that human error is normal. That that blame adds no value at all and that context is going to drive behaviors. So digging into the conditions which lead to errors, not just focusing on the errors themselves. So talk to me about how you got to this point. If that's a fascination of yours that you wanted to achieve, where were you before that and what inspired you to go down that avenue? So I had a 25-year career in the Royal Air Force. I was a Hercules navigator, left flying in 2004, did a master's in aerospace systems, and that's where I sort of formally touched on human factors as, as part of the studies. It's also where I started to get involved in a little bit more diving. And I had a, a close call on a dive, a couple of, cl- couple of dives actually, and, and I looked back and I thought, why doesn't, ha- why doesn't diving have the same reporting culture, just culture, learning from adverse events that aviation does? And over the next probably, well, six, seven years, I started to do a little bit more studying. Um, I started a PhD at Cranfield, and then left it because it just wasn't going anywhere. Um, but I, in 2016, I set up the Human Diver, which really is to bring crew resource management, non-technical skills into the diving industry and explain and teach people about just culture and psychological safety so that the fact that we all make mistakes, we all have near misses, we all have those close calls, but most of them don't get talked about. And yet that is where the, the events can happen. And fatalities are really the only ones that get talked about because you can't hide them but the problem is with fatalities the person who knew about the decision making is normally dead and you can't ask them how does it make sense for you to do what you did and that's really what this is all about is trying to bring my experience and knowledge from quite a diverse career in the air force from operations trials research and development procurement systems thinking into the diving space and i'm really i've got a double-edged sword i'm the only person who does this so I have huge opportunities. The other side is nobody knows what this is about. 
So, <laughs> you know, there's a huge education. So you still have huge opportunities. Oh, no, I do, I do, I do. Sharing um, the knowledge, brilliantly. Totally. But you know, this is really interesting, what, what you just mentioned there about the ability to have conversations about what went wrong is a huge opportunity to learn from that. Because, you know, it's, it goes back to, to my favorite Bill Gates quote, that success is a poor teacher. We learn more from our mistakes than we do from our successes. And that's true of business. That's true in diving, it sounds like, too. And yet, you know, people don't like to talk about when they make mistakes. Totally. And, and there's a huge number of cognitive biases that exist that, that force us into being defensive or you're different to me. I wouldn't make that mistake. It's like, right. why? And that's why I've, you know, I brought my materials in from aviation, from oil and gas and healthcare, just repackaged it mm -hmm. into the diving space. We're all human. We all broadly right. make the same mistakes. We behave broadly the same way. And it's, it's trying to break down that barrier of fallibility because diving is a pretty ego-driven sport. Hmm. Um, and the industry doesn't market it as operating in a hazardous environment. You're in a non-life-sustaining space. Mm -hmm. But if you look at how diving is marketed, nice, you know, scantily yeah, clad people is, on a beach, yeah. blue seas behind, everything's yeah. looking great. Well, actually, it's not quite like that. So how do you foster those conversations? What are some of the things that you do to help people have those difficult conversations to learn from their mistakes and from the mistakes of others? Um, I don't talk about diving. So I will tell a story that they can resonate with that talks about that variability of human performance. So it might be you walk out the front door and the door goes click behind you. That click is a memory trigger because you, the thing about forgetting is you won't remember it until there is a trigger. So you walk out the door, you go click. Oh, and my keys, oh man, they're inside. Right, so what is it that leads you to forget something? It might be you're busy thinking about something else. How is it that we can bring our focus in? And one of the key areas, and you know, it's a, a key tenet for aviation safety, is the use of checklists. Mm -hmm. They're not a panacea, but they are a way of forcing us to slow down. And, and, right. and it's, yeah. it's about telling a story that they can relate to, get them to understand their own variability performance, their cognitive performance, and then you sit there and go, right, do you understand that this is how and why you make a mistake? Yes. Right, now let's talk about the operating environment. And that storytelling happens in healthcare where I've worked, oil and gas, software teams. It's about, um, I'm going to say deconflicting, or it's about creating an environment where people don't feel threatened because I'm judging their professional competency. If I can tell a story that people relate to as humans, and you go, that's how it makes sense for me, right. Let's look at the condition in which you were in when you forgot to open your cylinder or you weren't checking your gas on a dive or you ended up in a wreck without a line. Let's look at, you know, what if, we, if that's what the topic's going to be, I'll start with a human topic mm -hmm. to, to bring and break right. down those barriers and say, right, do you understand this? Right, now, let, oh, no, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> so there are still biases and, and problems to get over, but it is about disarming people's conflict. And I love how you're bringing this from aviation because I think, and obviously I was in the Air Force with you at the same time, and I think the aviation world was one of the pioneers in this open reporting mm -hmm. and this breakdown, again, in a very ego-driven world. And we saw throughout the 60s, 70s, as aviation was picking up commercially, 
lots of accidents. And we saw that in the Air Force and general militaries as well. And it was exactly that. It was an accident. People died, aircraft crash. And then afterwards, people go, oh, yeah, that nearly happened to me. Well, why didn't you say something about yeah. it? And then it became that open reporting where, and I remember this in the Air Force when it was rolled out, H4, Human yeah. Factors Open Reporting, where you could put anonymous submissions in that, you know, and it came became, I learned about flying from yeah. that. You know, I, I really screwed up last week. I didn't tell anybody and I got away with it, but then my mate died of it the following week, yeah. if only I'd said. And then once they opened that up and had those stories that made people, you know, I've got goosebumps now thinking yeah. about this. If, if only I had. Yeah. Man. And then they started doing that. And the aviation incidents just went down and down, the numbers. And it's because people were sharing. And then as people were doing their jobs, flying or whatever, they were like, ah, this happened to Gareth last yeah. week. Don't do this. Do what he did. And they were saving lives rather than creating these you know, horrific accidents that ultimately ended in. Well, oh, this is a real interesting thing because it's through storytelling that we learn mm, as people. Yeah. yeah, That's how human beings... How kids start, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, and, and, and it's been that way since the beginning of time. I mean, if you, if, you know, if, you, if you think back, I mean, you could tell somebody those berries are poisonous. Don't eat the berries. And maybe yeah. they'll remember that. Maybe they won't. But, you know, if you're, if you're the clan chief and you're sitting around the campfire and you say, look who's not with us tonight. Groog is not with us tonight. Groog was such a great guy. Remember how Groog used to always make us laugh at our feast and how he was always the first one to get his spear in the mammoth. And there's poor Groog's wife and children there. Look at them crying because Groog has left us. Why did Groog leave us? He left us because he ate the berries, the red berries. I'm going to get the red berries. Don't be like Groog. Now every time you walk by the berry bush, you're thinking about poor Groog. Poor old Groog. Yeah. And 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 a sobbing wife. The the aviation bit is that ability to tell the story. So it wasn't until the sort of 60s and 70s that they put cockpit voice recorders in. Oh. And and so at that point, dead people could tell stories. Mm -hmm. Wow. And so up until then, it's pilot error, stupid pilot. They're the one who flew (laughs) in the ground. And then they started looking at these cockpit voice recorders and you go, you know what? they knew that something wasn't quite mm-hmm. right. And invariably, it was the junior co-pilot or the flight engineer would sit there and go, Captain, Captain. Uh, yeah, and, and, it, and then you just couldn't escalate it oh, quickly yeah. enough. There's so many learnings from that. I, I don't, what was the, there was a, there was a JAL flight that crashed in Korea, Japan Airlines, I yeah. think. And, and on the cockpit recorder, it was a really rainy, really hard rain. And on the cockpit reporter, like the last words are the co-pilot saying, Captain, I'm not sure that this is, and the, you know. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Not there's so many of those. And that was that's the ability. Yeah. yeah. And that's it. And it started off as cockpit resource management. And they went, hang on a minute, following Kegworth and Manchester um, air accidents in which the back end cabin crew knew stuff. But there was a gradient between mm-hmm. sky gods and trolley dollies down the back. Yeah. Is, you know, there's this physical barrier and a social barrier. They went, you know what? They're part of the crew. Let's make this crew yeah. resource management, and then it became maintenance, uh, human factors work as well. Everybody. So anybody airside touches human factors, and they yeah. get human factors training because they realize that it makes such a big difference to understanding how and why people make, in hindsight, stupid decisions, but in real time, locally rational or bounded rationally decisions and go, it made sense. Let's dig into that. So you've reminded me of another story that gets into both human factors and this inability of the people who are low down on the totem pole to be able to challenge and, and, and say what they see. There was a, a really famous case study that we studied when I was at the U.S. Army's red teaming school at Fort Leavenworth 
about the Einstein Medical Center in mm -hmm. New York. They had a problem just a few years be before, I don't know exactly when, but, but within the past you know, 10 or 15 years, they had a problem with a MRSA outbreak. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, medical, medication resistant staphylococcus, uh, something. Look in the show notes and we'll tell you what it stands for. <laughs> but it's the infection that you get in mm -hmm. tend to get in hospitals and it can be fatal. And, and it, it's something that exists in every hospital and you, know, you can't eradicate it, but it was really out of control at this hospital. And they had brought the doctors together and said, what can we do to make sure that, that we get this, this infect, these infections under control? And the doctors had suggested several things and they'd done them and it wasn't, wasn't working. So then they had paid expensive outside consultants to come in and yeah. tell them what to do. Yeah. And they told them pretty much the exact same thing the doctor said. And you know, they said, well, we did that and that didn't work. So they brought in a, a group of, of folks who said, look, we're going to look at this in a different way. We're not going to tell you what to do. We're not going to ask the experts. We're going to have conversations, focused conversations with every different cohort that exists mm -hmm. in this hospital. We're going to talk to the doctors. We're going to talk to the nurses. We're going to talk to the administrators. We're also going to talk to the medical assistants, the, the nurses' aides, the janitors, everybody who's involved. And the administration was like, well, you know, we've tried everything else, so sure, why not? They didn't have a lot of confidence in this. But that's exactly what they did. And one of the, the key things that came out of that was they, when they got down to the janitor, and the janitors were kind of like, why are we even here? You know, we don't, you know, why are you asking us about this? You should be asking the doctors, surely. Um, and they said, well, you know, it's okay. We're just, we're talking to everybody. And we just want to know what you've seen that's different because not every ward at the hospital had the same rate of infections. Mm -hmm. There was a couple of wards where the infection rate was significantly lower, but they couldn't figure out why. So in... They worked their way down to the group with, with the janitors. And in that group, they, they explained that. One of the janitors kind of sheepishly raised his hand and he said, well, well, you said, you know, ward number two is one of the wards that, that has a low rate of infection. And they said, yeah, do you notice anything different when you're in ward number two? See, I, I clean ward number two and I clean ward number one and number three as well. And there's always a, a lot more trash in ward number two. So they were, they were really puzzled because they were like, well, how does more trash lead to less MRSA? So they asked him, well, have you, what's in the trash? He said, well, there's a lot of gloves in the trash. Now they, were, they said, wait, gloves? Everybody's supposed to be wearing gloves all the time. So they, they went and got the, the rest of the staff from ward number two. And what it turned out was that the hospital was only ordering medium-sized gloves. Most of the nurses had petite hands and the medium-sized gloves were too big. And so when they were trying to do injections and stuff, it was, it was, they were the taking their yeah. gloves off and doing that. In ward number two, the head nurse, out of her own initiative and her own pocket, had been every couple of weeks stopping at a medical supply store and buying a case of small gloves and putting them in the, taking out the medium gloves from the dispensers and putting Our small gloves in. Brilliant. Yeah. And didn't even they hadn't even connected the dots. Yeah. They realized that's what it was. In that ward, they were using the gloves. Yeah. And because nobody wants to get called out, when they'd asked, Are you, is everyone following procedures? Of course, everyone yeah. in the other ward said, oh, yeah, we Cover wear our gloves all the time. But now yeah. it was out. 
and the thing is, it was it was that janitor yeah. that saw that. But you have to create mechanisms. You have to create forms. You have to allow people yeah. to have the the psychological safety, but also the opportunity to speak up, to share what they see, and then have that be heard and not discounted. If you want to be able to benefit from that. And that's what H4 did. Yeah. Because everyone's talking about psychological safety now. And that is a damned hard thing to create off the bat, especially in the organizations yeah. today. But going through these mechanisms, having tools, techniques, and capabilities that allow people in anonymity. Yeah. Until it becomes a normal cultural thing. And then you can approve it. Thing, then you can <coughs> do it openly. But yeah. so often they don't. They try and create psychological safety first. Yes. And that's almost, you're missing the boat if you're trying to do that. Because there's a much easier way of raising oh, totally. all these points. And, and, and that leads us, you know, that organizational learning and, and how do you move that on, which shows that healthcare didn't learn because Semmelweis and his whole bit about um, uh, doctors, uh, pregnant women and their deaths. Yes. Um, yeah. and, and the infection rates. And it was just like doctors, midwives. Midwives are washing their hands and telling the doctors, no, you've got to wash, wash your instruments, wash your hands. That's oh, not my problem. And, and yet, you know, so it's this piece of where is it that we can learn and you have to tell those stories. You know. And, and the, the, the best stories are those with a really rich context, not just the one-line, two-liners. And, and I, you mentioned If Only. It's something that I do as an exercise. I, I produced a documentary about a diving fatality, and the title of it is If Only, hmm. because there are a number of people on board the boat who, in hindsight, said, I wish I'd said something. If only I'd said something. And I, I run a little exercise, and I... I tell her what would be a social media account, and it might be three or four lines of text. Um, a diver is on a training course. He gets off the back of the boat. The instructor's still on the boat. He swims around the side, and he appears to lose consciousness and sinks down to 40 meters. And it's like, what do you think happened? And people come up with all sorts of real ide you know, ideas, but there's only a few of them say, I don't have enough knowledge. Mm -hmm. And then I play oh. them bits of the video. So the first 24 minutes is face-to-camera work, with the widow and the dive team to talk about their story. Uh, and then I say, so what do you think now? Ooh, oh, okay. And then I play a little bit, I've got some analysis at the end, sort of eight and nine minutes at the end of that, that basically says, and this is the human factors as aspect behind it, the theory, why do people behave the way they do? This explains what was going on over there, and this is how you can detect it before it happens. Now what do you think? And you end up with a much richer answer. And the whole thing, you know, so you're, the red team thinking stuff is, let's look at the context. Let's look at the depth of what's going on, Correct. not just the surface immediate stupid. That, that's such an important, this surface thing. And as humans, we know this. Our brains are lazy. We, we assume very quickly. Efficient. You know, we jump to conclusions and we'll change our minds as quickly as we're influenced by social media and yeah. what someone says. And so often, you know, and we see this often when we're working with teams, everyone loves to blame the leadership, the executive. And I'm like, okay, just take a moment. Why, if, if somebody's behaving like that, why? Ask yourself that. No one comes into work, you know, very few people come into work to be of that ilk. Yeah. And if they are doing, maybe something's gone on. Maybe something's happened at home that they're not, yeah. you know, just go and speak. Hey, do you want to go and get a coffee? Let's have a, let's have a chat. Are you okay? And they may just go, oh, thanks. Sorry. Yeah. Yes, here's what's happening. I didn't realize I was being X, Y, Z today. Yeah. And I think that's the key thing from the learning and from the teaching that we can bring to people this is just people yeah is just stop and take that moment to think what go, what if what goes beyond yeah. what else is at play here and, and understand that sort of situational awareness self-awareness awareness of others to get the deeper richer picture of why a thing 
might happen even better than did happen because we all prefer a pre-mortem to a post-mortem, yeah. don't we? Oh, oh totally. Well, you know. So in hindsight, we do. <laughs> and, and this is, <laughs> the but paradox of that statement. Exactly, right? it is. Exactly. It is because yeah. the, the pre-mortem takes time. Correct. And unless you've actually done one before and seen the value, yeah. you don't see. You just see it as dead time, non-productive time. And when you do one, you go, oh my God, that was useful. Well, that's the thing though, is once you've done one though, yeah. and you see the value, yeah. then you want to do one every time. Well, I love this idea of talking about red teaming diving. Mm -hmm. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we will dive into that topic more. That did you see what in. he did there? Oh, I did. did you I see did. that? And it happens all the time. You can't Brilliant. teach it. Uh, can't teach it. Stay tuned. Are you a red team thinker? Are you the person in the room who is always asking the tough questions? Do you see what others don't? Do you find yourself muttering, I told you so, too often after plans have gone awry because nobody listened to your good idea? If so, then you might be. Take our free assessment and find out. There's a link to it in the notes below. I can't wait to see how you score. Welcome back. So, Gareth, before the break, we were talking about red teaming diving. And I know that in addition to your own excellent work in this area, You've gone through our training program. We've had an opportunity to work together on some stuff. And I'm just curious if you could talk a little bit about how you've been able to apply red team thinking to the problem of making diving safer. Ooh, ooh, interesting. Um, I would say probably red teaming myself um, because the, the level of, of knowledge out there in the diving industry about human factors, decision-making, things like that is really quite low. I would say it's probably where aviation was 50 years ago. Wow. Um, so it's, it's a long way back. So the biggest thing is, in, in terms of the diving bit, is why wouldn't somebody follow through what I'm trying to do? Uh, and what's in it for me? What, you know, what, what is it that drives them? And, and pick up something that you said just before the break of leaders, you know, workers look at leaders and go, man, what are you doing? That's just really stupid decisions. Yeah. But actually, from a chronic point of view, it might be business drivers that are going on. So understanding, and that, that's probably been one of my biggest things, is the awareness that diving training organizations are businesses. They are there to train instructor trainers or train the trainers to sell marketing, to sell courses, yeah. to, to get divers through there. They're not a charity. They're there to make money. And some of them are owned by commercial venture companies. So the shareholders that are associated with them. So one of those bits of actually, why does the system behave the way it does? And looking at the different uh, stakeholders, how would you manage those differently? What are they going to bring to something? And what am I going to do with my own programs? Uh, I'm going to say stakeholder management. And the, the, the devil's troika is one of the, the, the tools that always reminds me, you know, it's just like, yes, this is such a powerful thing. I've sit there and, and I have to do it with my instructors and I sort of sit there with a plan and pass it over. What do you think? You know, tear a hole in it, you know. Um, so and devil's troika, for those who don't know, is a tool that we teach that's really designed to help you play the devil's advocate, to look at your own ideas, your own plans, to see if there isn't a better option and then to kind of stress test those options and see if there isn't a third way that's even better that is better than, than, than the sum of the two. So it's, it's really a powerful yeah. technique. And, and it's that piece of engaging with my instructors, with other stakeholders to say, 
you recognize the value of this because you've done the training with me. It's like the, the, the sort of the pre-mortems. Once you've seen it, you're like, man. In fact, one of my instructors says, I, I can't see the world in the same way that I used to. And I hate you for it. And I went, you can blame me all you I like. Know, I don't I love that. This. I love that. And, and so, you know, I use them as those sort of those bouncing boards to say, right, where is it that I'm going wrong? What is it that I need to do? Where is it I need to focus on? What can I do to help you grow the human diver? Because I'm trying to get away from Gareth Locke, the human diver, mm -hmm. is actually I'm just contributing and the, the human diver is out there yeah. to just try and get, because my ultimate goal is that as, as any sort of, say, consultancy education organization is that we don't do one-to-one um, -one training. We do train the trainer stuff inside the organizations and they own the development themselves. So we would end up doing very little work because actually in the same way the airlines, the military and all that, they've embedded human factors training inside their organizations and they don't have external people coming in. So and, Yeah, and that's the whole point, isn't it? And it's the same with our philosophy. It's you want people to take this and own it themselves. And, and it's like when you see something you can't unsee it anymore, it's the same with this capability. Once you think this way, yeah. then every time the little devil pops up and goes, what about this? And then what about that? And your brain's in a very different space. And we, we did a, a sort of wash-up report with uh, one of our clients from the Canadian government. So we did the full program with them. And then three months later, we got together and just say, how, how are things going? And despite what they were doing in the workplace with each other and the teams, every single one of them said, I am using this personally, constantly. Yeah, we hear that all the time. All yeah, we'll the time. Say that it, yeah. You ask people, how are they using these tools at work? Yeah. And they say, well, I'm doing this and this, but I'm also using them at home. Everything. I, I get Amazing. that with my diving classes. You know, I teach people crew resource management in the dive, non-technical skills in the diving space, and we use a computer-based simulation to do this. And, you know, it's a two-day intense course because mostly it's run at weekends because that's spare time for people. Uh, and they finish the course and you go, you know what? I'll probably use this more in my work. It's software or healthcare or project management. I went, yeah, it's the same stuff. It's just different stories. But top tip, folks, don't red team your spouse. It doesn't end well. <laughs> Trust me. A man talking her experience right there. <laughs> so it's, yeah, it's, it, it just goes as any of this stuff goes across fields. Um, and I, when I sit there delivering some training, I'm constantly thinking, and it, and it won't be red team thinking training, it'll be human factor stuff or uh, psychometric training or whatever. And I'll just sit there and go, this organization, the problems you've got, you could really do with some red team thinking going on here. Yeah. It's like, make a note, right. And then there's the difficult conversation of how do you get in there? So how do you yeah. make your decision? So I'm going to ask you the question there, Bryce. How do you break the ice to get in from, from a, a red team thinking uh, concept. Well, it's a, as you say, it's a tough question. I mean, you know, I, I think it's hard to force your way in. Mm. Um, we tend to be invited in, you know, is how we get into organizations as people either have read my book, heard our podcast, watched our YouTube channel, taken one of our courses, talked to somebody else who's done. And they say, right, that's, that sounds like what I need in my organization. Mm -hmm. Then they'll reach out to us and ask, how, how can we do this? How can, how can I get my people skilled up in this? How can yeah. I learn about this? How can we implement this in our organization? It, it's, it's not something that you can you know, knock on the door and say, hey, would you like a little applied critical thinking in your organization? Yeah. Um, because most people aren't familiar with this. This is not, this is not a natural no. act. It's not a no. natural way of doing things. In fact, you know, particularly in business, through our careers, we get taught to go along, to get along. We get taught to 
keep our head down, keep your nose to the grindstone, focus on your on your part of the company, stick to your knitting, you know, don't rock the boat, all of these things. What we are teaching is how to lift your head up, how to say what you're seeing. Let that inner voice come out. How yeah. to, Constructive yeah. dissent. Yeah, yeah. To, be, that. to be the loyal opposition if necessary. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 but to do it in a constructive and collegial way that advances the organization, that's not about personality, not about stepping on people's toes, not about making people look stupid, but about helping individuals and organizations make better decisions faster in today's complex world. Mm. To get the permission to do that, because you need oh, permission yeah. to do that, you've got to help them understand that. And that's actually why we do this show. That's why yeah, we absolutely. do this, this so show is to help people awareness. understand yeah. what this is, what the challenges are. Because then people hear, you know, there are people who are listening to what you're saying, Gareth, and they're saying, wow, that sounds a lot like the type of stuff oh. that I'm dealing with in my organization. I'm not a scuba diver, yeah. but I know exactly what Gareth's talking about. And then when we talk about how you've been able to use some of these approaches to work through those challenges, that helps them say, wow, I could, I could see how that would benefit us yeah. too. So the good thing is that it's not just the diving stuff. You no. know? So I'll, I'll do work with offshore support vessels, oil and gas, software, because it is transportable. Right. Um, and so it's about trying to take those ideas. And in the safety space, we're you know, sort of doing a studies, masters in, uh, in human facts and system safety, just looking at red team thinking has got massive benefit in the safety space yeah. uh, because of the bias that we don't have an accident, therefore we must be safe. <laughs> Uh, and, and it is it's oh, such wow. a. Have you seen those X number of days since last oh, accident? Man, hey, and, and those are out? but those are so compelling. I know because that's what the organisation is. It's a lovely metric to hang your hat on, isn't it? And, uh, and, and completely well, useless. Yeah. But you know, you talk about that, and this is something that that I w I should have put it in my book. But you know, you can only put you can only tell so many stories, and uh, one of the one of the first uses of a red teaming approach was in the nuclear industry. Mm -hmm. And I talked with a gentleman uh, who was a uh, nuclear engineer. He'd been, you know, a nuclear engineer, run nuclear power plants. He was Swiss. And he had made a career going around to nuclear facilities around the world with a team mm -hmm. and doing pre-mortems. Mm -hmm. He didn't call them pre-mortems, yeah. but that's what they yeah, were. Absolutely. And, his, and they would look and they'd say, right, if there is a catastrophic disaster at this facility... What's going to cause it? What are the things that we see here yeah. that could cause that? And then coming up with a list of recommendations yeah. about how to mitigate those things. So here's, a, here's a, the terrifying story, though. He was brought in by Tokyo Electric Power mm -hmm. to do an analysis of Fukushima. Um, I think, I want to say, don't quote me on this, but I want to say about 10 years before the disaster. Mm -hmm. And I don't remember the total number of recommendations. He came up with something like 13 recommendations. They'd done 12 of them. Wow. But the one that they didn't do was move the backup generator building to higher ground. Yeah. And they didn't do it because that was the most expensive <laughs> mitigating action. Ill cost yeah. factor. That, yep. that he recommended. But, but I mean... He had, he had just spent a week there or a few weeks there, and he'd already seen. And some of the other stuff they'd done, like he had them raise the seawall yeah. like, because they, you know, planning fallacy. They were planning, they had planned for a tsunami, but they hadn't planned for a worst-case scenario yeah. tsunami. Mm -hmm. So he said you need to raise the, the seawall to X height, and that will protect against a, you know, 500-year yeah. yeah. tsunami. But then he said, 
but you also have a real vulnerability because your, your diesel generating facility, your backup power facility is at one of the lowest points yeah. on, your, on your plant site. And if somehow that seawall is overwhelmed, if there's a yeah. bigger tsunami or an earthquake that damages it, that's where the water is going to flow. And in reality, yeah. that's exactly yeah. what happened. The water exactly. flowed there, shorted out the battery, shorted out the generators, and they had a meltdown. Yeah. And 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 but the point is, is that, you know, that's that's red team thinking in action right there. And uh, you can use it in the nuclear industry, but you can use it anywhere, including on scuba diving. I, I remember going to give a presentation at a MOD establishment a couple of years ago, and it was all about risk management and and how do you manage risk, complex risks. And I asked a very simple question. How many greens make a red on your risk matrix? I hadn't thought about that. And it's this, this exactly this piece here yeah. that you sit there go, and, and people end up messing with a system because if they end up in a red in their risk matrix, oh, I've got to get all the clearance up here. Yeah. I'll, 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 I'll fudge it so it's an orange or a green. Yeah. Okay, it's great. easy to do with a oh, PowerPoint. Yeah, totally. Changes, isn't it? And then you just sit there and you go, right. So if we've got a whole bunch of greens here, what happens if all those greens happen together? Mm-hmm. Where do you put them? We hadn't thought about that because that's not how they were managing risk. Yeah. And so to that point there is, yes, we've sorted 12 of those and we've moved them all. But now Look we how much progress them. we've made. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and so yeah. I'd also think, uh, why did the original engineers put the diesel generators in the basement? In the first and, place. And in the first place, because there must have been some very credible reasons for that. Because yeah. they wouldn't, you know, it might be the cheapest bit. It also might be the easiest from maintenance and long-term stuff. So, you know, that systems thinking bit of right. not just... How does it make sense for the person to do what they did at the sharp end? But how do the engineers, how do the managers, what do they get rewarded for? What, what's their problem that but they're trying exactly. to Exactly. But this goes, doesn't it, to no good red team thinking or post-mortem afterwards. In the ideation and the design phases, use these capabilities while you're Massive. doing things yes. like that to say, if we do X, yeah. so what? What if? Yeah. We have never thought of that. And again, if you put that out to the masses, somebody will come up with that crazy thing that might never happen. But what if it did? Yeah. And that's, that's a lot of the problems we see into is when these things do happen, somebody somewhere called that out, but they weren't either listened to or they didn't call it out because they were fearful. Yeah. And then it happens and they go, I told you so. Well, that's, that's not really a consolation prize, is it? Saying I told you no. so. As there is a, a case going through or an issue going through in the States, which is um, professional liability insurance. There are only a small number of insurance companies who will underwrite professional liability insurance in the States for scuba diving. Mm-hmm. And there are so many claims that companies are pulling out. Yeah. So there's only a very small group now, but they haven't got a huge pot to play with. And right. it could be that actually a number of claims just wipes out that pot of the insurance. Mm-hmm. So it's now getting to the stage they're going, um, we're no longer going to do this, yeah. which means that you can't really instruct or you'd be stupid to instruct in the States without professional liability insurance. Yeah. And then the sport collapses. Well, the, and this happened in, in medicine mm-hmm. in the States several years ago where liability insurance for doctors, because in, in particular specialties like neurosurgeons, mm-hmm. which have a high degree of less than optimal outcomes. Because they're dealing with very difficult situations. Because they're dealing <laughs> with very difficult situations. And because they're dealing with situations where people are going to want to blame somebody if things don't end well. Yeah. So... The cost as a result of how many claims were being filed in our litigious society against neurosurgeons dramatically increased the cost of professional insurance for neurosurgeons. And as a result, neurosurgeons 
in areas that were not major metropolitan areas started shutting down yeah. or moving to major metropolitan areas because they couldn't afford to pay their liability insurance. And it got to the point where in Montana or Wyoming, I don't remember which of the states, there was one neurosurgeon at one point on duty in the whole area. And this is a state where there's lots of mountain climbing yeah. and stuff like this. So there's a lot of head injury cases and stuff. And they were having to put people on helicopters and fly them to another state because the neurosurgeons there had either said, you know what, I can't make any money on this anymore. I'm retiring yeah. or I'm yeah. moving somewhere else. And these are the things we, you talk about systems, you talk about, about unintended consequences, Marcus. We don't think through these things. We simply, you know, too often decision making is done in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. yeah, we make much. decisions in a room that is, is usually hermetically sealed. And we don't think about the consequences of those decisions outside that room. And that's why a big part of what we try to do with Red Team Thinking is to get people to think three-dimensionally about things, to, as you mentioned earlier, consider the different stakeholders who are yeah. involved, and to consider, as you mentioned, Marcus, the second and third order effects yeah. of our yeah. decisions. Because so if you true. don't do those things, you may make the right decision, but it ends up being the wrong decision. And I would say one of the big things that I would take away from the Red Team Thinking is having a structured meeting. There's a, there's a great thing called the garbage can model when it comes to how decisions are made in businesses. It's who's available at that time to sit in the meeting to do it. And they may have nothing to do with what's Correct. going on, but they've put a bum on a seat, right? Everybody happy about that? Yeah, off we go. And so you end up with just stuff being thrown in. And, and they'll nod at whatever you ask. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. Just get yeah. me out of this meeting. Totally. I didn't want to be here in the first place. Yes, yeah. yes. You've got some you opportunities. Yeah. You've got some problems. You've got some solutions. Yeah. Throw it all in the middle. What comes out? Yeah, that'll do. Good enough. Yeah. Whereas actually with the red team thinking is that structured piece of making sure you do have the right stakeholders, that you understand who's going to be impacted with that, and then going through a structured process to get the best outcome you can. You're right. But you know what the other danger is, Gareth? Not making a decision. Well, there is that too. Because yeah. you also get situations where people can't come together. And so you don't, you, you know, today it's very hard to get 10 people mm -hmm. well, on the same yeah. calendar. Why is that? Yeah, we because everybody, as you yeah. like to say, is double busy. <laughs> double busy, isn't yeah. it? We were talking about this yeah. last night. Marcus wants to get, get buttons. Double uh, busy badges Double for busy badges no, for everyone. It's a curse. But, but because people are so busy, yeah. then they are not able to make a decision and sometimes when a decision needs to be made. Yeah. So yeah. one of the things that, 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 that I like, I, I think it was uh, Albert Sloan, the, the, the famous... Uh, CEO of General Motors uh, back, in the, back in the day in the 20th century had a rule that whenever a matter was brought to the attention of senior leadership, it had to be acted upon within 24 hours. Now, the, the action could be we need to learn more about this yeah. in order to figure out what to do, but it had to be acted on in 24 hours. And he was famous for calling people in the hallways yeah. and saying, oh, look, it's 358. I remember that at 4 p.m. yesterday, you brought this to our attention. What's it going to be? We have two minutes to decide. And people yeah. say, oh, well, let me go get my team. He'd say, no, you don't have time to get right your now. team. Clock is what's, what's it, is yes or no? Or because actually the clock makes the decision for you. Right. Yeah. And that's a very powerful technique. Yeah. It's a forcing function. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's something that we've, we've really lost that ability. Is I think a lot of organizations spend a lot of time kicking the can down the road. Oh, big mm -hmm. time. 
believing that they're busy, believing well, that things are more chaotic than they really are. Yeah. I also think there's a massive amount of blame. So people are afraid of making a decision yes. yeah. because they're the one it'll be pinned on. Yeah. Um, right. under, without understanding the complex environment. And one of the students on my the, the master's I'm doing works in health, um, child welfare in North Carolina. Mm. Uh, and so she talked about case studies that went from 2014 to 2022. And 2014, there was a horrendous child death and immediately child welfare services under the microscope, you're to blame, you're to you. And, and it was horrendous. Fast forward a number of years, and it got to the state where the governor was saying, child welfare, child welfare issues are really complex problems. There is no one solution to solving this. We have to look at it a big mm -hmm. thing. So they managed to change the sort of state perception because they realized that there was this blame. People could not do what they needed to do because there was a fear that it was all going to be you. That's always and, the way, though, isn't it? And that's why people, you know, we get as much as people complain about leadership, we get executives complaining that people won't take accountability. They want to devolve this decision-making and control and responsibility, but then those below are quite happy. I call them baby starlings. They're quite happy to sit and look up and get fed, Yeah. but they won't take the accountability to go hunting and feeding for themselves because of often the blame and fear of being blamed. Yeah. So it's, it goes back to the systemic issues that they don't not want to take it, but they know that if they're doing something goes wrong, you're going to throw a spear at them yeah. rather than help them assess how and I think it goes back to why the H4 thing works so well in yeah. the aviation world, because people said, look, stop. It's nobody's fault. Yeah. It's a collective systemic issue. Yeah. And we can only solve that together by finding these little pieces of the puzzle individually and bringing them together as one to then surface the bigger yeah. picture. And when we've got that as a team, you can see what's happening. But if we don't and we blame Bob or Susan or Jill for doing certain things, straight away, what does that do? Yeah. Shuts everybody else up. Totally. And that's the second stage of you know, psychological safety, yeah. learner safety. Can I make a mistake? A physical mistake, a social mistake, technical mistake, and how is it dealt with? Yeah. And I will go in there and look at an environment and go, I'm not going to do it. sense it. Well, I? and this is something that really impressed me when I first started researching red teaming and I learned about the Israeli organization, which I'm going to butcher the name, but Ipcha Mistabra which is what they call their mm -hmm. military intelligence red team, which means in Aramaic, on the contrary, the opposite may be true. The thing that really struck me about this organization was that the people who are on that, were assigned to that unit, are not judged on their success rate. Mm -hmm. They're judged on the, the conversations that they engender in the organization because what I was told by one of their leaders is if people have to be right all the time, then they're going to self-censor themselves yeah. all of the time. Yeah. But if people are, are, are rewarded for simply throwing things out there that get the organization thinking, then you need to give people permission to be wrong. Yeah. That reminds me, I love, you know, the podcast we just did with Alan Mulally, his, his green, yellows, and I reds. Love I love that story. Calls his reds gems. Yeah. 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 Because right now, you know, you're a reporting project manager. You turn your red to a green before you walk in and brief because yeah. you know the hassle you're going to get. That being a gem, because if that's a gem, we share that and we all learn from that. And we can see why that's gone red, what the problems that individual's facing, and then we can help that individual. So Gareth's got a red, it's not on Gareth, it's now yeah. us to help totally. and swarm around that collectively to bring, say, hey, I probably know how to fix that thing that you're having problems with. That happened to me last week, mate, hey, let me come and help you. But if you've covered that up as a green, all that does is just make a bigger red snowball, doesn't it? It gets bigger and bigger and then right. it explodes. And causes more so i think shifting that mindset that you want to red you want that gem because it's going to get you in lights for all the right reasons 
and it's going to get you the support you need yeah. because we're a team. And it goes back to that crew resource management. Yeah. It goes back to teamwork. And if you're the CEO and you've got a thousand members, you've got a thousand person team. If you're a fighter pilot, you've got a guy in the back. Well, even if, if you're, you're a diver, you've got a buddy buddy. Yeah, but even a single seat pilot a single seat. is working with a formation, Absolutely. air traffic, they've got other fighter people, controllers yeah. saving the world again, as always. And yeah. they've got the whole team around. <laughs> Uh, but that's the whole yeah, point, absolutely. isn't it? And it goes yeah. about everything we're talking about. We're in the people business. Yeah. Whatever trade we're talking about, whatever industry, this is all about people. And the work you're doing with that counter-errorism, we all make errors. It, yeah. It's human, isn't it? You know, uh, To default, yeah. com computers make a mess, but humans, it's natural to make errors. But how we and it's only a, deal it, with it. And, and that bit about error, you can only classify an error after the event. After the event. Uh, and so that, you know, from the red team thinking bit is identifying those conditions that are likely to lead to an outcome you weren't Correct. expecting. So uh, never that see. you can prevent it from happening. Exactly. Yes. This is or great. to exploit it because there are opportunities there too. That too. Absolutely. The flip side of the red team. I love that. <laughs> you have learned well. Here. <laughs> well, on Thank that you. bombshell, uh, this has been a wonderful conversation. Gareth, Thank thanks so much for joining us. Thank Folks, you, Alex. Thank you. Tune in next time. Awesome. Brilliant. See you. Thanks very much. Take care. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Thinking Leader podcast, sponsored by Red Team Thinking. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss the next idea-filled episode. Also, check out Bryce and Marcus's YouTube channel, Red Team TV. There you'll find video of today's podcast as well as previous episodes. And don't forget to visit redteamthinking.com to learn more about Red Team Thinking work and Marcus and Bryce's upcoming online courses. While you're there, take our free quiz to find out how you rate as a Red Team Thinker and if your organisation has a Red Team culture. Because who thinks wins.